Good morning and welcome everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88. Right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are. Positively different radio in the morning. You're with the Double L team, Lyle and... Lawson. Lawson, how are you this morning? Oh, so, so great. And that, is a, that is a blessing, praise God. And like, I am, you know... Racking my brain to find something to be grateful about, but oh, okay, like that. But to be really honest, really struggling this morning. But are the, we? Like I'm going to be honest. Okay, so this is you know my my third day out of out of you know quarantine. Yes, it's been raining every single day. <laughs> yeah, oh, it has. sucks. Like it's terrible. Like <laughs> like uh, you did I, your entire quarantine. Perfect weather every Perfect day. Perfect weather. And I'm like sitting inside sweating so hard because it's like, <laughs> like, uh, you did I, your entire quarantine. Perfect weather every perfect day. Perfect weather. And I'm like sitting inside sweating so hard because it's so hot. Yes. And then I finally come out and it's just. It's rained ever since. Rain and rain. I awesome. guess I can be grateful that, you know, the, the ground isn't completely dry. Can you dry do and all dead. of us a favor and go back into quarantine? <laughs> <laughs> Just take one for the team. Take one for the team, Lawson. Um, no. Uh, anyways, what are you grateful for this morning? Um, Valentine's Day. Oh, wait, is that today? No, oh. it's like <laughs> 10 days. <laughs> no, nah, because we have a goal to uh, finish one of the rooms on our house by Valentine's Day. Oh, so okay. It's, uh, it's, it's, given me, it's given me a target to aim for. Oh, nice. And you're just getting in there. Pretty like... stressed about it at the moment. <laughs> What's what's the what's the the workload like? What have you got to do? Okay, so pretty much I'm up to doing uh, cornice, plastering, mudding, sanding. Oh, painting. the easy stuff. Yeah, <laughs> but it's kind of time consuming when you're sort of doing a little bit here and you know an hour here and an hour there kind of thing. So yeah. yeah. Oh, anyway, well, good fun. Yeah, no, get into it. Bob. Oh, absolutely. I'm 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 thankful for it. I'm looking forward to it. And uh, it's going to be absolutely amazing. Yeah. Oh, speaking of houses, I'm actually currently in the process of, of moving um, to, into more into town, closer to the studio here um, and closer to the Newcastle University where I work. So I'm super keen to, to, to get into that. But, you know, it's, it's a process. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. With early in the morning, and of course it is very early in the morning. We're about to get our quiz as soon as it comes up on the tablet. Uh, Lawson has uh, just rushed out to the studio to grab it there for us. Lawson, what have you got for the first question for our quiz this morning? Yeah, here we go, here we go. Okay, for 100 points, this is the wrong question. Okay, for, one- <laughs> uh, for 100 points, let's have a look here. It's it's coming up on the screen. Man, I'm in the, scrolling, scrolling. the 30th of the 11th of 2021. Uh, uh, okay, for, historical, for, yeah. for 100 points. 100 okay. points. If you right, can figure out what the quiz is, we will give you 100 points. How many, with a question how many days had Jesus fasted in the wilderness when Satan tempted him to turn stones into bread? Okay, very 100-point quiz question, guys. 0491-064-669 is the number to call. For 100 points, you can win yourself a Faith FM bookmark and or bumper sticker, or you can get those points on the board and continue to work your way through the quiz. But again, that question was, how many days had Jesus fasted in the wilderness when Satan tempted him to turn stones into bread. 
Very good question right there. So let's see if you can figure it out. Mm-hmm. I think that most of us know the answer for that one. Mm-hmm. But zero four nine one zero six four six six nine. Lawson, let's have some positively different news this morning. Oh, positively different news. Okay, I want to talk about animals today. I love animals. They're so cool. And I Credit think, story. I think... Our, it, our, our weekly fluff. I'm going to talk about one of your favourite animals. Oh! Actually, your favourite animal. Elephants. Elephants, yes. 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 Your favourite animal. Did you know... What's your, what's your favourite animal? Penguins. Okay, yep. Yeah, yeah. They are awesome. We're not talking about penguins today, but we are talking about elephants in yep. two kind of sense senses. I have a story about elephants and a story about woolly mammoth remains that they've found recently, which is really cool. That's very cool. Yeah. Um, well, they're just elephants, just bigger ones. They're just big, hairy elephants who lived a couple thousand years ago. In Siberia. Yeah, or they've found some remains of them in England. Um, but another oh, thing hap- okay. happening in, in England with elephants um, is that for the first time ever, elephants are being administered vaccines, not to fight against COVID-19. Uh, <laughs> but, okay, so there is a disease that they have identified since 1999 uh, amongst elephants. It's called um, EEHV, or elephant endotheliothropic herpes virus. So basically, these elephants, um, they get this form of herpes, which has, unfortunately, a mortality rate of 85%, uh, which is terrible. For, uh, um, largely amongst young elephants who get it, like, from 18 months to three years. Um, and by the time they see symptoms, which is, like, largely mouth lesions and whatnot, they see, like, cuts and everything in their mouths, um, it's usually too late. Uh, but now they have been uh, administering a new type of vaccine they've created to help these elephants out. Um, and the mortality rate of these elephants has dropped dramatically from 85% uh, amongst their trials, the the mortality rate of elephants that have caught this disease yet having the vaccine um, has gone from 85% to around 40%. So it, they've basically halved it overnight by giving these elephants vaccines. That's, that's amazing. So that they could fight herpes. That is fantastic. <laughs> that's a, 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 very, a very good thing to be doing. And I guess uh, we've had... We get a vac- humans get vaccines for herpes, right? We get a vaccine for herpes. I don't know. There's so many vaccines out there. I lose track of them all. <laughs> I just whenever I go to travel overseas, I sort of head down there and it's like, okay, I'm going to this country. What do I need? And what have I had? And they have a record of what I've had. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They know. Like, yeah, but I have no idea. Mm. But yeah, uh, this is like, you know, they're making real progress in this area. It was seen like for a long time as something that couldn't be overcome. Like obviously having identified the disease in 1999 and now only only at this point administering a vaccine to it. In fact, they have a case recently um, of a group of elephants in who were born in the Chester Zoo in the UK where, you know, six baby elephants being born, they're all hanging out together and then... Five of them passed away, Ooh, which is awful, rough. you know, and all from this virus. Yep. Um, but now they have the ability to be able to vaccinate. step in. I wonder whether they'll them. be able to uh, vaccinate wild populations. Mm. That'd be fun. I, I from what, from what I've read here, it doesn't seem like it's it's spreading amongst, amongst wild elephants. Wild elephants, just those who are in you know, um, like very small conservation areas and zoos. Yeah, they get too concentrated. That's and- right. Too small of an area. and well, that's generally how it goes. I remember reading a story. Same like, with humans. Same with humans. Same with, like, a lot of, you know, f- um, when it comes to, like, animals that are, like, farmed and, you know, turned into... We're not into designed food. to live on top of each other. <laughs> that's right. That's correct. Yeah, you, um, put, you, put, you put, you know, feedlots and that kind of stuff. Mm. Disease goes rampant. Oh, 100%. And new diseases come out. It's a, it's a perfect breeding ground for new diseases. 
Um, you put humans in a vertical filing cabinet, also known as a, uh, a human <laughs> filing cabinet, I should say, also known as an apartment building, and, you know, who knows what could happen. So I think there's a lesson to be learned right mm. there. But just the same, it would be fun to run around the bush with a trank gun uh, vaccinating <laughs> elephants. Shooting elephants. <laughs> and that's all. I'm doing them good. Yeah, you're vaccinated now. <laughs> elephants like, what was that? <laughs> They're just like, <laughs> I don't know, I don't want to entertain the thought, but that's pretty funny. <laughs> then you probably get all of these uh, trank darts all over the bush just sort of sticking people in the foot. Like, Stick, Sticking people in the foot, sticking other animals in the foot. Then they're, they're all like vaccinated. Would, would not be ideal. Herpes now. Um, in other elephant news, yes, they have found uh, woolly mammoth remains in a cave in Devon in England. That's very cool. Which is, again, very much against... Well, not largely against, but they yeah, they didn't really expect to find it there. Essentially, England used to be connected to Europe. Yeah, back in the day. Yep. What? Yep. So why wouldn't elephants go across there? Sure. This is very cool, though. But not only have they found remains of woolly mammoths, but they've also found remains of woolly rhinoceroses as well, which are like I didn't even know a woolly rhinoceros existed. There was such a thing. Yeah. Apparently, there were hairy rhinoceroses running around. Why not? So so good for them. So, yeah, they, they've, like, gone and excavated this cave. They also found um, remains of, like, wolves and foxes and different things that had gotten in there and also, you know, spent some time with uh, these remains. You eating know, elephants. Eating, eating woolly mammoths. Um, but, but, yeah, no, this is really cool. Like, this is obviously a landmark discovery in England. They've never seen this before. They've never found remains of woolly mammoths within this area. Or rhinos. Or rhinos. Or woolly rhinos. So I wonder whether there was ever woolly hippos. Oh, big! No, but they were in the water. That's that's. Uh, yeah, and so are polar bears. Not really. Polar bears in the water all the time. Yeah, but they're like hippos. Like live in the water. Polar bears kind of like hang out in the water sometimes. Uh, it depends I, how you define live and hang out. <laughs> this is this is open for debate. So let us know. Our number is zero four nine one zero six four six six nine. Do hippos live in the water or do they hang out in the water? And polar bears, do they live in the water or hang out in the water? No, I think I think I'm correct. Um, polar bears. Huh, polar bears. Polar bears are bears. Right? They sleep we under tr- ice trees or something. I don't know. <laughs> 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 uh, but um, yeah, yeah. yeah. So this is this is really cool stuff. Oh, and lastly, here's some more animal news. Um, Cranes within Europe um, have had their most successful year breeding since the 17th century. Really? Yeah. So that is wild. So cranes within Europe have been some of the most, like, particularly within Western Europe, around the um, England, Germany, Italy, Spain kind of area. There are only like 72 breeding pairs. Which at the moment is kind of a record. They've been an endangered species species for like. Literally hundreds of years. We can't afford to lose cranes. We won't have babies anymore. That's right. Who's going to bring <laughs> us our babies if we if we lose dogs? Okay, so they've been. That's that's a very small number. Yeah, seventy two breeding pre, uh, breeding pairs, which is record breaking. So good for them, I yeah. guess. Like coming coming back from the brink. Uh, it's right on the brink. They are the tallest animal. Uh, sorry, the tallest bird in in that area of Europe. You know, we have emus over here. They're like yeah. massive, um, but they're standing at you know one point two meters tall, um, and they're just 
epic animals, dude. They're just like massive things with long legs who who get around. But yeah, um, they have an estimated population in total of around 200 birds at the moment. Um, yeah, with the, those 72 breeding pairs. So basically, uh, according to those numbers, which is still incredibly small, um, they're killing it. Most of them live in conservation areas because there's like 200 of them. Uh, but yeah, they're finally, they're coming back. So it's good to hear. And then, oh, dude. I love these stories when animals come back from the brink, mm. particularly once you reach the point where it's, this is no longer on the endangered list. And, you know, it was down to like 20 pairs at some particular point. Yeah, It's that's always right. exciting to see them come back and to reestablish. And it's like, yep, I might get to see one of those one day. Ah, yes. Dude, it's, oh, I want a pet. I want a pet crane. Bring it over to Australia. Deliver all the babies. You know, get yeah, it done. <laughs> let's not have it go wild on us, though. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Welcome back, guys. This is Andrew Peterson right there with In The Night. And I think we might have some answers to some of our questions here this morning uh, coming through from our Brains Trust with the listeners. But before we do, we have uh, another quiz for our question. Another... Congratulations to those who got the first one correct. Yes, that is correct. For 200 points, to which of King David's sons did he say, the Lord searches every night and understands every desire and every thought? 0491 is the number to call. For 200 points, you can win an issue of Science Magazine. Uh, but again, that question was, to which of King David's sons did he say, the Lord searches every heart and understands every desire and every thought? There you go. Mm. Okay. So coming through on the text line, you always know when Shell is behind the desk, awesome collection of music. She should do the entire day. Wow. There, there Big, we uh, go. Some producer Shell fans. Guys, send us fan mail for producer Shell. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Polar bears swim over 20 kilometers in a day and sleep in ice dens. That one's from Freco. So not yeah, but under ice sound trees, like but in water. ice dens. And Raphael says, go Cranes, life is good. Good to hear that COVID hasn't stressed them out. <laughs> They're just going for it. Forget yeah, the that's COVID. Right, it's, that's it's right. Go for it. <laughs> All right, so good to hear from you guys. Keep keep uh, those messages coming through. We've got lots of interesting things to talk about here this morning. We are going to talk about uh, Christianity in the world and mm-hmm. it's, uh, well, whether it's increasing or decreasing. Oh, interesting. So okay. What, what, what are your thoughts? Increasing or decreasing? Um. As a, as a I, ratio, as a percentage okay. of the population of the Ooh, world. Oh, as a ratio and a percentage. Like, I think most, like, faith groups increase, right? Just because people get born into them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I would say... Wouldn't as, they be matched by atheism, though? Um, I I would... I don't know. I would say, I would say it's increasing, actually. Okay. All right. So this is the uh, Status of Global Christianity Report. Uh-huh. Um, and they do their research periodically, beginning in 1900, then 1970, then 2000, and then, of course, last year, bringing us up until this year. And then they do projections into the future. So they've got projections for 2025 and 2050. Mm-hmm. Okay. So during the 2000 to 2021 era, so basically the last 20 years we're talking mm-hmm. about, uh, religionists in the world, in other words, people who have a faith, uh, grew by 1.27%. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you reckon that compares to atheism? They probably had, like, a very large growth. Okay, atheism grew by 0.18%. Oh, that is interesting. Yeah, so atheism is actually dying out. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You, know, you project it far. If it c- continues on that projection into the future, atheism would. Now, atheism is never going to die out. We get that. We know mm. that. 
And looking at, you know, these guys have been uh, tracking this for quite a number of years now, and so you can sort of see these things coming in waves. (laughs) Yes, over 100, 120 years now. Mm. Uh, So you can kind of see these things coming in waves. But uh, atheism peaked in 1970. That makes sense. uh, With 165 million. uh, By the year 2000, it was down to 141 million, Mm. while the population of the world had gone up by another 2 billion. Mm Mm-hmm. And so that's a major decrease in mm. numbers. When you, when you compare that with the population of the world, uh, that's actually a massive decrease in numbers. Uh, in 2021, it's risen marginally again, um, mm. now up to 147 million, still nothing like the figures you had back in uh, 1970. But it is, while it has risen mildly, it is in the process of dropping, and so the current projection is that by 2050 it will be down to 143 million. Mm. And so it seems to be kind of sitting around that uh, 150 million mark and not being able to move past it, Mm. Uh, which I find most fascinating because the population of the world is exploding during this time period. Um, Religionists, on the other hand, uh, in the year 2000 were 5.3 billion people. Mm. Uh, now, um, so 20 years later, they are sitting at 7 billion people. Mm. And by the year 2050, they should be at 9 billion people. Wow. Now, amongst the growth of religionists, we, of course, should talk about Christianity because that's what interests us. And Christianity has grown by 1.17%. So Mm -hmm. uh, other faiths growing a little bit faster. Mm Mm-hmm. But Christianity, right up there. Uh, that's the 2000 to 2021 figures. And amongst Christians, the fastest growth was, and this is interesting when you look at where our, and I think, I think our, our, the leaders of our world should take note of this because by far the fastest growth amongst Christianity has been amongst evangelicals and charismatics. Yes. Um, growing at 1.9%, mm. which is very, very significant. Uh, you've got... A lot of your mainstream, uh, mainline Protestant churches during that same period that have decreased dramatically to the point that they will not exist. Most mm. of your mainline Protestant churches that have gone way out on the left and gone way woke and all that mm. kind of stuff uh, simply won't exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are looking for the kind of Christianity that takes the Bible seriously. Mm. Yeah, and and is, that like that kind of corresponds if we look at church history over the last 20 years, like particularly in the West, you've got like the church planting boom, you know, the denomination boom where like the non-denomination boom, where it's just like people starting church companies everywhere. And you can see that all over the place from people like Elevation, Hillsong, Bethel, all those things that like have become these big famous church companies now. And then as that's taken off in, in the United States, everywhere around the world's like kind of, followed that model, whether you go to, you know, uh, the Protestant hubs of, you know, the the East, like Korea or South Korea or whatever it may be. Um, They've seen this model of, oh, we can just start our own church and get lots of people to come. And the churches that are focusing on biblical teaching Mm. are the ones that are growing. That's right. The ones that are moving away from biblical teaching and are moving towards spirituality are just tanking really badly. Totally. Mm -hmm. Spirituality without biblical teaching, that Mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. Because obviously 
you have to have spirituality with biblical teaching. That's right. Okay. Um, Charismatics are now the second largest religious group in the world, second only to Roman Catholics. And if you were to take practicing Christians, in other words, Christians who go to church on a weekly basis, Mm. they would be by far number one. Mm. Um, The place, the area of the world where Christianity is growing the fastest, this was interesting, is south of the equator. Okay. Christianity is booming south of the equator, so we are in the hot seat of... uh, uh, of uh, Christianity right here in Australia because we're south of the equator. Mm. Um, but the other thing that's interesting is that Christianity is no longer concentrated in Christian-majority nations. Mm-hmm. So if you go back to the year 1900, Christianity almost exclusively existed in Christian-majority nations. And mm. when you went to nations that were not Christian-majority, they might have been Muslim, um, Hindu, Buddhist, animist, mm-hmm. whatever it might be, Christianity would be very, very marginal. And back in the year 1900, uh, people who lived in a non-Christian majority nation, only 5.4% of them knew, personally knew, a Christian. Mm. Whereas now that number has increased 18.3%. So if you go to, say, China, for instance, which we have no idea how many Christians there are in China, uh, but it's not a Christian majority nation. Mm Mm-hmm. Back in the day, it would be very rare for someone in China to actually know someone who's a Christian. Now it's very common for someone in China to know someone who's a Christian. That's right. So that's a positive thing. Uh, let me see here. Back in the year 2000, uh, the number of Christians who lived in Christian-majority nations was 59%. It's dropped to 53.7% by 2050. That'll be down to 50.4% of Christians will... Um, be living in a Christian majority nation. And so we are, as Christians, we are much more spread and much more diverse and much more you know, spreading around the world than what we were before. That's a positive thing mm. uh, because we are no point leaving the salt in the salt shaker. Yeah, that's right. Can't be the salt of the world if the salt is still in the salt shaker. Mm. Okay, uh, martyrdom, interestingly, uh, in the year 2000, there were, uh, sorry, in the year uh, 2021, there were, just under a million martyrs, so around 900,000 people gave their life for their faith as mm. Christians. And by 2050, they're projecting a mild increase up to one million. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a little bit sad that it's not actually going away. We would like to see that number go away and disappear. But that's a little bit of a snapshot of the state of Christianity around the world. Often, I think, in Australia, which is a very secular country and is aggressively secular, uh, I think we often get a bit discouraged and we sort of think, well, Christianity is losing ground. We are not growing how we need to be growing, and we need to be aggressively evangelizing our world. There is no question about that. We need to get out and share the love of Jesus with the people around us and share that Jesus does have a plan for their lives that is so much better than you know where their lives are going right now. But at the same time, we need to take courage that Christianity is slowly and inexorably uh, moving forward. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Gonna have another clue for the quiz before we get into our interview for 300 points. What did the patriarch Isaac forbid his son Jacob to do with a Canaanite woman? 0491064669 is the number to call if you know the answer. And if you do, you can win for 300 points a pocket sermon. Or you can give us a call, give us a text. Answer correctly, get those points on the board, continue to work your way through the quiz so you can sweep every question and get every prize. But again, that question was, what did the patriarch 
Isaac forbid his son Jacob to do with a Canaanite woman? All right, if you know the answer, you know the number, 0491-064-669. That'll be for 300 points. And uh, you can win a prize or That's you right. can just join the breakfast the breakfast crew the bragging, bragging rights. The breakfast bragging rights crew. <laughs> and have some fun with the quiz. Well, joining us on the phone this morning is one of my favourite segments of this particular uh, breakfast show, and that is Eliza Southwell, uh, who is our resident historian. Eliza, welcome to the show. It's great to be on. That's high praise indeed. Thank you, Lyle. <laughs> Now, Eliza, we're talking about, um, we've got a bit of a different theme this year. Last year we were looking at, um, I, I guess, uh, historical figures in Australia who were Christians and looking at their impact on Australia. This year we're going a little bit broader and we're looking at, a, at actually a time period. And so really, I guess, what we would call the Dark Ages. And, and most people just assume that, well, Christianity in the Dark Ages was in Western Europe and it was the Roman Catholic Church. But... For those who have studied a little bit of history, we know that that is very, very far from the truth, and so we're looking at some of those places where Christianity was very strong but less well-known. Whereabouts are we going today? That's right. Today we're going to Syria. So Protestants tend to say that, you know, we're going back to the Bible. Um, Catholics counter that by saying, well, you know, you're ignoring Christian tradition. But actually uh, Protestants do have this link with the past, with apostolic Christianity, with biblical Christianity, um, and that's not found through um, a connection with the Roman Catholic Church, but it is with um, many churches throughout the world, including the church in Syria. And so last time we called these churches the church in the wilderness. Yes. Uh, that's the biblical term for them. Um, but the church in Syria, we first hear about this church um, on Paul's first missionary journey when he goes to Antioch. Um, with Barnabas around 45 AD, um, but uh, with the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, many Jews around um, outside Palestine turned to Christianity. Um, this was obviously one of the great prophecies of Jesus, that um, the temple would fall, Jerusalem would fall, and um, of course the Christians had advanced warning of this, so they got out. Um, in time, and all the Jews around Palestine realized, oh wow, Jesus was the real thing, and um, they turned to Christianity and they established the church all over the known world. Um, so the Christian Jews who fled Jerusalem to Decapolis over in Transjordan were probably numbered around seventy to ninety thousand people, That's and from there, number. many of them, yeah. Many of them moved to Syria. Um, and so there were um, cities. Syria was really um, an enormous center of cultural heritage and of learning. And it was also a very, it was the richest province in the Roman Empire. Um, and yet we, we go to Syria today and there are ancient cities that are that are abandoned. Um, we see in their stoneworks and in their inscriptions, inscriptions of uh, dedicating buildings to Christ, dedicating churches. But these cities were abandoned when heresy was outlawed throughout the Roman Empire by, by the church in Rome. And these Christians fled um, because 
Rome had defined their beliefs as heresy, so they fled to uh, the Persian Empire. Right, so is, when, when Rome um, defines their, their beliefs as heresy, if I could just jump in here for a moment, uh, was mm-hmm. this because they were sticking by the Bible rather than by the traditions that Rome, you know, was, I, I guess, instigating and creating? Because, you know, particularly when you come down to that 5th century era, you have a tremendous amount of paganism that just floods into the Catholic Church and mm-hmm. um, and dilutes Christianity to the point of impotence. Almost, you know, you could barely even recognise it in many mm-hmm. respects. And is this where you start to get this, I guess, schism between the East and the West, where the West is saying, well, we need mm-hmm. to be embracing paganism to win pagans, and the East is saying, no, we need to embrace the Bible to win paganism. Is that, what, is that what's taking place here? Essentially, yes. Um, so, of course, when you put it like that, that sounds terrible. And, you know, why would they ever agree with that? Um, but actually, it was, it was much more an issue of creeping compromise. So what happened um, to push Syria out of the, the Roman fold, if you like, between 45 AD and when heresy was banned in 380 AD? Well, um, one figure stands out particularly, his name was Lucian. Um, he was a great theologian. He was an elder of the church in Antioch. Um, imagine C.S. Lewis, but with, authority, if you like. Um, he, um, some of our listeners might have heard of the Textus Receptus, um, which was a uh, translation of the New Testament into Greek that was verified uh, by Lucian amid a myriad of cherry pickers in his time. Um, so he um, made sure that there weren't any ap- apocryphal books in the New Testament. He translated the Old Testament to Greek. He used, um, and that that text that he um, curated and, and translated was used is used um, to translate the Luther Bible, the Tyndale Bible, and the King James. So Lucian is is um, a really key figure in the Church in Syria, but he. Um, played a part in a developing rift in the church between uh, the church in Antioch and the church in Alexandria and Rome. Alexandria and Rome kind of argued that, you know, we can interpret the Bible allegorically, metaphorically, um, and they did that because they had so many pagans there and they thought, well, how can we reach the pagans? Well, if we're not quite so hardline, if we're not quite so fundamentalist, um, then maybe we can be a bit more attractive to them. So um, Clement, for example, who was from Alexandria, uh, taught that um, Rome was supreme. There was no salvation outside the church. He taught that Christianity was compatible with paganism and that some worship was really like worshipping the son of righteousness, which is, of course, one of Jesus' names in the Bible. Um, so he was very loose with Scripture. And Lucian had a problem with that, um, as, as our listeners might imagine. Um, and Lucian denounced, in very strong terms, um, that kind of playing loose and fast with the Word of God. He took a very high view of scripture and thought, well, look, 
let the Bible stand for itself. Um, and our, um, our standards for faith and practice should come from the Bible. He was particularly resistant against a developing habit of looking to traditions of the church as basically equal to the Bible itself. Um, this, this was a, a popular, I suppose, um, popular habit in the same way that today we might you know, have our favorite preacher. And if you start quoting your favorite preacher more than you quote the Bible, you know, beware, you're doing mm. the same thing that, that Rome did in the beginning. Um, interestingly, um, there's very strong evidence throughout the Eastern Roman Empire, um, even in, in Constantinople itself, in modern-day Istanbul, um, that even up into the 5th century, um, Christians widely kept the Sabbath as, as the day of worship. Um, but these Sabbatarians were accused of being Judaizers by Rome. So there's this increasing tension as well on, on the front of what's involved in the Ten Commandments. Have they been changed? Does anyone but God have the authority to change them? Um, and so that, that also plays, played a role in these increasing tensions with the church in Syria. It's fascinating information. You know, when we talk about Syria, we don't think of Syria as being a... Uh, you know, a, a, a birthplace in many ways of Christianity, but the reality is we could say, well, Christianity drew out, it grew out of Jerusalem, but it, it did not spend much time with its headquarters in Jerusalem. It Very quickly the, um, the balance moved to Syria, and mm. Christianity really in the ancient world grew, grew out of Syria, grew out of Antioch even, uh, became a great missionary mm. centre. Um, something right. that we, we are, you know, right. and I guess one of the other things that's, that's fascinating is that even down to today, People don't realize there's three quarters of a million Christians in Syria. And we think of it as an Islamic country, but that that would not be an accurate depiction of what Syria is. Right, right. We, we tend to think of Syria as an Islamic country because, of course, when the Islamic Empire was first founded by Muhammad and his, his predecessors, um, sorry, his, his successors, um, it expanded very rapidly and conquered Byzantine Syria in the 7th century, um, many of the Christians that had remained sought refuge further east in Mesopotamia, in Persia, even further east, um, as we'll, we'll discuss more um, later on in the year. Um, but, but yes, they, they fled the, um, the rise of Islam because, of course, under Islam, they, they weren't, they were second class citizens. And, um, there was the Dimi tax that they were required to pay, um, as, as Christians. And the, the, um, the situation they found themselves in was almost similar to a reversion back to, um, the, the kind of atmosphere that existed at the time of the apostles, with persecution from Rome. Mm. And so... They kind of replaced persecution from Rome with persecution from Islam. That's right. And they had a short period in between of 
thriving mission work where they had a free reign to do the work as it should be done. Um, Mm. It's, it's interesting when you look at the history of Christianity in Syria and how you know the impact of Islam, and also the rise of Islam. Because you know, one of the, I guess one of the questions, that's, and this might this is this is definitely going off topic, but one of the questions that's gone through <laughs> my head for some time is how was Islam able to rise so rapidly, so hard, so fast, and you know, and, mm. and grow so um, exponentially in such a short space of time? But when you look at the climate of the world back then, you've got this this movement that is you know, away from the Bible in the West and is heading towards idolatry in many ways, um, mm-hmm. you know, where you had, you know, the veneration of saints and images and all of these things that were, you know, uh, parts of paganism that came flooding into the Western church. You've got resistance to that in the East amongst Eastern Christianity. You've got Islam that comes along that absolutely abhors anything to do with idolatry and, and sort of goes as far from mm-hmm. any form of idolatry as it possibly can. And you can suddenly see how it becomes attractive to people who are looking for an alternative from the religion in Rome. Well, in many places that the Islamic Empire expanded into, Christians weren't converted immediately by any stretch of the imagination. In Spain, it took a few hundred years after the majority of Christians to... Um, to convert to Islam, I don't think um, I I don't think Islam expanded primarily because of um, the groundswell of popular support. Um, we forget that the Roman Empire was very fragile, and in the West, it crumbled very quickly. In Constantinople, it still had some integrity, but um, the Roman Empire suffered from overreach. And it, it just wasn't possible to maintain such a large empire over such rich countries um, for so long. And, you know, Islam didn't rise until the 600s. And there was a lot of water to go under the bridge between um, between the, the disintegration of the Roman Empire and then um, I think it was relatively easy actually, um, with a, um, well, if you like a, a strongly ideological military force um, that had seen great success in Arabia to proceed on to Egypt and uh, through the rest of the Middle East because they felt strongly that um, this was a work that you know, God had put before them and when you think that God is with you, um, that is a huge motivating force. Yes, so so I, I think the rise of Islam is, is due to other forces. But, um, it, uh, morale is is worth three times what uh, technology is in in in, in battle. Um, right. Eliza, we, we've right. um, it's been an interesting conversation talking about the uh, the history of Christianity in Syria and particularly how it spread from there to Persia and then further east, um, across, of course, crossing to mm-hmm. India and China. Um, up into Mongolia and other places, and I'm assuming that uh, in the future we're going to actually trace the history of Christianity as it moves across into these areas. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but um, we look forward to next month's instalment where we dig into another portion of the history of the church in the wilderness. Thank you so much for joining us here on Faith FM. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.